0: Mac Power Users Episode Three Forty Six. Casey lists the app programmer. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside David Sparks, for as long as the Skype gods will allow.
1: You bet, Katie Floyd. How are you today?
0: I'm well, other than the fact we've had to restart this podcast about four times now. Um, but that's all right, because we've got a guest that is well worth the extra effort and someone who definitely understands Skype frustrations. Uh, we're welcoming <laughs> back to the podcast uh, star of the Accidental Tech podcast, Mr. Casey Liss. Hello. How are you guys? Welcome. We're, we're so glad to have you back on Mac Power Users. It's, it's been a while.
2: Indeed. It has been a while. We were just talking before the show, and it was August of 2014. Uh, Let's see. What episode did I say? It was 209. So you guys have been busy since then.
0: We have. And um, you've had just a few minor changes in your life. Nothing dramatic, but... (laughs) No, no, not a bit. A a few little things have happened. Let's see. um, You had a kid since, since the last time you came on the show. And you completely changed jobs I mean I guess you're kind of in the same field but you you definitely made a, a pretty steep turn there went
2: to
1: the side of angels right
2: yeah something like that um, we had uh, our first child uh, whose name is Declan uh, at the end of October of 2014 so actually his second birthday is coming up soon
0: you, you decided not to name him sprout that's kind of disappointing yes
2: yeah that that's true um, and every once in a while um, the sprout emoji comes back uh, back out and, and for listeners who may not be aware um, I, Aaron and I do didn't have my wife and I didn't know the name of Declan. We hadn't picked one until after he was born, actually, uh, until a couple hours after he was born. And so in lieu of having an official name for him, we used to call him Sprout. And then there's a little, I think it's actually strictly speaking called seedling or something like that, or sapling emoji. That's basically like a little green thing that has like two little leaves coming out of it. And uh, that was what we used as the designated emoji for Sprout when he was in utero. Now he's two years out and he is just Declan. But every once in a while, I'll find myself using that emoji or calling him sprout, uh, to Aaron. And she kind of gives me this funny look and smiles. So it does happen from time to time. Even still,
1: I think it's kind of awesome that he, he started life out kind of like Prince, you know, just a symbol.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'll catch wind of this one day and be like, dad, really? But at least for now, I think it's adorable.
0: Well, and he's about to turn two, so you might have a different emoji for him soon.
2: Yeah, <laughs> That's true. And actually, we've uh, we've been going through a bit of a sleep regression these days. So the last few nights at four o'clock, he's decided to wake up and uh, and try to get up for the day, which is always delightful. So always never a dull moment. But to be honest, you know, we're, we're so lucky to have him. And, and by and large, he's such a good kid. So uh, I, I try not to lose sight of that fact.
0: Maybe he's just a morning person. Yeah, it very well could be.
1: When my kids were growing up, everybody always told me, they're like, oh, you got to really enjoy. This is a special time. And they'd say six months or one year or three years or whatever. And they're all fun. Just enjoy the ride, man. Because before you know it, he'll be grown up.
2: Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I look at, I look at pictures. You know, each morning I'll, I'll go through pictures from uh, from that day and years prior, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later. And seeing him a year ago as, or, or now almost two years ago as, you know, newborn or as just a wee little kid that's about a year old, it's just so wild. And and somebody said to me once that the days are long, but the years are short. And I thought that that was extremely apt because I, you know, I feel like today has been a long day since I've been on up on and off since about four in the morning. But yet I feel like he was born yesterday. And it's the weirdest weirdest thing in the world. But we're very lucky. So um, and this isn't the Mac Parenting Podcast. This is the Mac Power Users Podcast, so we should probably talk about power user-y things, whatever they may be.
1: Well, we have a a great entry point there, Mr. Liss, because you were, last time you were on the show, you've been a developer your whole life. I mean, you're an app programmer, or I guess, you know, uh, developing tools, and you were working for a company that was putting, you know, you were a gun for hire when someone needed help with whatever it was they were working on, and you worked largely, if not exclusively, in a Windows environment, and the last time you were here, that was one of the things we joked you about. And <laughs> since then, I think just, just to, to set our audience straight, uh, you quit your job, took a job as an a essentially a full-time iOS developer. And so you've switched horses, and as a Mac nerd, now you're able to spend 24-7 on a Mac. Isn't that great?
2: Yeah, it really is. Um, like you were saying, I was a consultant, um, uh, still developing uh, software, but I was doing it entirely on the Windows stack. And if you if you happen to be familiar, uh, I was using .NET and C Sharp and typically doing web development. And in February, I left that consulting gig behind and am now working at a company that is not a consulting firm. We are a product company. And I'm working on our iOS apps. And that's super exciting for a variety of different reasons. Um, But one of them most explicitly is that I don't ever have to look at Windows anymore. And as someone whose heart wasn't really in Windows, I mean, I still liked the language I was working in C Sharp, and I still liked, generally, the, the projects I was working on. But my heart just really wasn't in it. And as I was looking at the the show notes that that David and Katie had put together for tonight and kind of adding a note for myself here and there, it occurred to me that this is the first time that I have been one hundred percent windows free There is not a computer in this house that has windows installed on it and this that 's the first time it 's been the case since windows three point one when I was a kid, and so my entire life i 've at least had. A Windows machine or a windows vM somewhere easily accessible and since I guess February when I started this job, I haven't had any access to Windows anywhere at any time, and that's refreshing but also really, really weird because that's quite a change from what I'm used to
1: yeah and, and that's why we really wanted to get you on because you've been doing that a while now, and I want to hear of the um what is it the the unharnessed Casey list <laughs> <laughs> Uh, unhinged, maybe I don't know. But the uh, uh, what? What is the um? What's life like now that you are not a Windows guy and you are a full-time Mac guy? How has it changed your workflows? Um, so so let's start with your gear. What what are you driving these days?
2: Yeah. So I at my last gig when I was doing Windows development, um, most of the developers actually chose to have Macs, and most of us had 15-inch MacBook Pros, and that's what I had then, and that's actually what I'm still using. Of course, it's a different you know different actual computer, but it's the same model. Um, I have a 15-inch MacBook Pro that that work issued. It is one of the most modern ones, which means as, as we record this, it was created, what, like 17 years ago? Uh, As we record, Apple is yet to release new Macs. And so um, it feels like it's somewhat old and somewhat new all at once. But the difference between the last job, the the Windows job, and and the job now is that I don't have any VMs on my machine. You know, I used to live in a Windows VM pretty much all the time in the old job. I would do mail on Outlook for the Mac. Uh, I would you know, do my web browsing in Safari. But all of my work work was in Windows in a, in a virtual machine, and I happened to use VMware Fusion at the time. Um, now, all of my work is on OS X, or actually Mac OS, I guess I should say. and And that's really nice, because although I got very good at kind of bridging the gap between the two, when I was doing the Windows stuff full time, it's just kind of annoying having two computers that you're working with, even if it's only one physical box. And to leave that behind is really, really fun and really, really nice.
1: Is the, um now, do you, do you have a home machine as well, or are you just using the work machine?
2: Yeah, actually, that's another change, come to think of it, is that, when I was at my last job, my personal Mac was a 15-inch MacBook Pro, but it was pre-retina. It was when you could get optionally a high-res display, and then optionally, optionally, you could get an anti-glare coating on that high-res display. So this was a...
1: Oh, I remember that, that MacBook. Yeah. It's only a few years ago.
2: Yeah, I think it was 2011 or something like that. And... I had that machine for a year or two before I started the last job. And when I started the last job, I got the exact same machine. However, work gave me an SSD for it. And the moment I used that computer for the very first time, this is a 2011 MacBook Pro 15-inch high-res anti-glare, but with a third-party SSD. Do you remember way back when when we could change those ourselves? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I had this machine. This was my first machine with an SSD, and it ruined me for life because I couldn't use my personal machine anymore since it had a traditional platter hard drive. And what I ended up doing, much to the chagrin of many people I've spoken to, is that I just used my work machine as my computer. And a lot of my personal data was on there. And of course, it was replicated in other places. But Really, my work machine was my only computer. And around the time I knew I was leaving that job, I knew that that wasn't going to work because I wasn't exactly going to be allowed to hold on to that machine for like a month and transfer stuffed into my new work computer. And so what I ended up doing in January of this year is buying my first desktop computer in a decade at least. And I got myself a 5K iMac, which was quite a harrowing thing to do because it was a lot of money. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the most expensive iMac you can buy, but it was close. And it was a lot of money that I spent on a computer that I wasn't sure if I was going to like because I haven't had a desktop in so long. And as it turns out, I don't regret it at all. I love this machine. It's what I'm using to talk to you guys right now. And I just love, love, love this computer. I I really don't miss having a laptop very much at all.
0: So are you using the laptop at all um, at home, or is the laptop strictly a work machine and you're using just the iMac and, you know, whatever iPad or so you have at home?
2: Uh, yes. <laughs> it's a little a column A, it's a little a column B. If I had to pick one, I would say it's closer to being exclusively a work machine. If I need to do something that's more complex or just quicker than than I can do on my iPad mini or my iPhone, then I will grab the MacBook Pro. But I would say more nights than not. In fact, almost always, it just sits in my laptop bag until the following morning.
1: Well, like I know that you're a big Google apps user and we'll talk about that later, but I think that's one advantage of these cloud-based systems. If you have a work computer, it allows you to kind of access your personal stuff without installing software and, you know, putting a bunch of your data on the work computer. So for a lot of people, that's a, a natural progression. When you're using a work computer for your main computer, yep. I want to back up though to this iMac. You, what size hard drive did you put in it?
2: Uh, I believe a terabyte. I don't even. I don't even know. It was so long ago, and I haven't had to worry about it. Let's see here. Uh, yes, it was a terabyte.
1: The reason I ask is we get questions all the time from listeners saying that they're going to get a new, you know. Uh, uh, MacBook or iMac and asking for stat recommendations. And I, and I think Katie and I universally always used to say, get as much RAM as you can, because that's that always makes a difference and it's not that expensive. Even with Apple current prices, it's not that bad. But I'm starting to feel increasingly like the other thing that holds people back is the hard drive size or the SSD size, I guess I should say. Um, the I'm getting tons of emails from listeners and readers at Max Barkey who are very happy with their machines but unhappy with their storage you know that's why people end up buying drobos or whatever to you know connect storage to their device but i i do think when you buy one of those uh if you can splurge a little bit i would i would add extra ssd what do you think about that katie have you got an opinion on that
0: i, I think it depends uh you can upgrade the hard drive later it's just not necessarily a, a pleasant thing to, to pull the screen off i think you can still casey right with these machines if you Technically, they're not user serviceable, but they they at least do have a hard drive in there that you can pry the screen off and, and replace if you really, really wanted to.
1: Um, yeah, but that super high-res screen. Do you really want to take it off?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. In my understanding, uh, you know, I, I'm
2: friends with a few different Apple geniuses and ex-Apple geniuses. And we, we all know uh, uh, Stephen Hackett, who has done these sorts of things on older Macs. And from everything I've understood...
0: Well, he also dropped his, his screen.
2: <laughs> that's true. <laughs> from everything I've understood, to do a clean, and I mean that both figuratively and literally, to do a clean screen um, removal and then reinstallation is a nightmare. And so... So uh, I wouldn't personally recommend it on any modern Mac. But I think, strictly speaking, Katie, you are correct that it can be done.
1: I just feel like they're never the same with the way these things are, are put together now. They're just never the same once you open them. Even like when you take it in and they need to do service on it and, you know, the Apple guys are doing it. I feel like I still feel like there's a good chance that something is messed up now.
2: Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. And to build on what you were saying, David, um, this machine is, like I said, a terabyte, and I had gotten um, 32 gigs of RAM from Mac sales or other world computing or whatever they're calling themselves these days. And doing the RAM upgrade was very, very easy. And I concur with you. For the bigger one, the
0: smaller one is not user serviceable.
2: Actually, I'm sorry, that is absolutely correct. Uh, The 27 inch is very easy. I think I'm pretty darn sure you're right that the what is it? 23, 25? I forget what it is. 21. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Um, whatever that size is, I believe you're right, Katie, that, that, that it is not nearly as easy. Um, but on the 27, it's cake. And so even though the Apple RAM prices are sort of competitive, to David's point earlier, it was still cheaper to get 32 gigs of RAM from OWC. And doing that, doing that upgrade was super simple. I definitely recommend maxing out your RAM first, because I think that's probably going to give you more bang for your buck. However, um, a year or two ago, Erin got herself a uh, 13-inch MacBook Air, and she doesn't really keep any data on her computer. She, I am the official uh, family photographer, and I typically am you know, managing all the data for the family. And she doesn't really have her own music collection or anything like that. And so I thought, oh, I'll just get her the 128 gig uh, MacBook Air. That shouldn't be a problem. And I don't know what's taking up space on that thing, but I just looked a day or two ago, and it has like 15 gigs free. I don't know if something just exploded over time. I don't know if there's a bunch of cruft in, in, in junk there that we just have to get rid of. I haven't done an investigation yet. But I bring this up to say that maybe it would have been worth it to splurge just a little bit on hard drive space like you like you you guys were talking about, just so this wouldn't be a problem as quickly as it's become one.
0: Yeah, I don't think I would ever buy 128. Sorry, Casey. Um, no, no, no. It's fair. <laughs> I, I think 256, if, if you think that I'm not going to use it that often, I think 256 might be an option. Um, 500, I think, is probably the base these days for average users. The terabyte, I, I although I think it's a luxury, I, I will say that, unfortunately, the prices of hard drives have not come down as quickly as I had hoped that they will, and a terabyte SSD is still pretty expensive. And in my mind, I'm only considering SSDs because after I've gone to an SSD, I would never even consider going back to a traditional hard drive. Now, I've not had much experience with the Fusion drive, which I understand Apple says is supposed to be this hybrid, you know, best of both worlds solution, the, the power of an SSD, but the storage space of a, a hybrid drive, you know, I or um, sorry, the storage space of a rotational drive. I think that's really a short-term solution. It may be here for a couple of more years until SSD prices go down, but I kind of also expected we'd be there by now.
1: This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Omni Group. Check out the brand new OmniGraffle 7 for Mac over at Omnigroup.com. I've talked about OmniGraffle before. It's an application I use to make beautiful, precise graphics. I use it for website development. I use it for exhibits and trial. I even use it for putting together family trees. What makes OmniGraffle so great is that it's easy to get started, but also has a lot of power under the hood when you need it. It's really hard to get that ease of use and power mix right. And the Omni Group does it every time. And they've done it once again with the brand new OmniGraffle version seven. The new OmniGraffle version seven has all of the tools you've seen with prior versions with some great additions like the point editor tool, which allows you to access every point on a shape, makes it really easy to customize the look of a shape. And for pro users, any adjustment is possible. They also have a new thing that I really love. It's called the Infinite Canvas, and it infinitely expands the size of the canvas. That way, if you start making a chart or a diagram and suddenly it starts getting bigger than you think it will, you don't have a problem. The canvas will grow to match that size. Along that theme of making everything more user-friendly, the new OmniGrapple 7 has a unified sidebar that's awesome. You don't have to go digging for inspectors. Whatever tool you need just appears depending on what you're working on. I use OmniGraffle a lot, but I'm not a professional designer, and I would love the fact that I can select an object and the tools I need to adjust it immediately appear in the sidebar. This new version also simplifies the export panel. It's now easier than ever to get your beautiful OmniGraffle image out into whatever format you need to use somewhere else. One of the things I often do with OmniGraffle is I make images for use in presentations, and then I wanna export it as a PNG with a transparent background. That is easier than ever now, and it makes it real simple to make beautiful presentations with OmniGraffle in your back pocket. If you feel like you've been cobbling together your own diagrams and graphics and would like to up your game, or even if you've been hiring somebody else, you should really look into OmniGraffle. This application is super powerful, yet easy to pick up and learn. So head over to com, download a demo of Omnigraffle, and give it an hour, and I bet you too can make some beautiful images and diagrams. Thank you, Omnigroup and Omnigraffle, for supporting the Mac Power users. Casey, before we were starting, uh, you were talking about your newfound love for a certain piece of Apple hardware. You want to mm-hmm. tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so I don't know why. I can't put my finger... In a, in a quantitative way on why it is. But I think my favorite piece of Apple computer hardware of the last few years has got to be this new Magic Keyboard. It's not that new now. It's been out for you know several months. One of them came with my iMac in January. But I love this keyboard. It is Super light and super small, which uh, we'll talk about why that's relevant in a minute. But the keys have just that perfect for me anyway, that perfect amount of travel, that perfect amount of crisp crispness. And I used to love the... Uh, Apple laptop keyboards. I thought those were darn near the pinnacle. To be fair, I haven't tried any of the like super fancy like cherry switches on mechanical keyboards. And I tend to like a quieter keyboard. But of the keyboards I have ever tried, including having grown up on the Model M IBM keyboard or whatever, I think that's right. Uh, this is my favorite keyboard I've ever used and genuinely hand on heart every single day at least once I think to myself, holy cow, I love this keyboard. And not only do I love it, With the computer, but what's super cool about it is, since it is so light and so thin and so small, I actually, from time to time, will take this with me and connect it to my iPad, my strictly speaking, my iPad Mini. And so this way, if I want to write like a email or. Or if I want to sit down at the iPad for a little while and and treat it like n- not really work, because I can't, I personally can't really do work work on my iPad since I write apps for a living. Although I guess I sort of can with Swift, with the Swift Playgrounds. But anyways... Uh, If I just want to sit there and type something for more than a couple of minutes, being able to connect this, this genuinely wonderful Bluetooth keyboard to my iPad, which is also very quick and easy if you do it in the right, if you do the right things at the right, in the right order. I love being able to do that. And on a final note, there's a product that I'm testing for a company that I can't mention that is a portable carrying case specifically designed for the Magic Keyboard that is amazing. And so the combination of the two, so the the Magic Keyboard, this carrying case that will be coming out shortly, and my iPad, it's such a wonderfully great travel setup that I love. And I could go on for hours about how much I love this keyboard. I don't know why, but I do.
1: Uh, Katie, you've got a different opinion, though.
0: I personally like to have a keyboard when I'm sitting at my desk that has a numeric pad. So we were talking about, I also, like you, like the uh, Apple keyboards that come on their laptops, if nothing else than just because I'm familiar with them. So the keyboard that that I use at my desk is the Logitech um, K750, I think, as I flip it over to double check. Yes, uh, it's the Logitech K750, and I I like that because it has a, a similar key size and a similar key feel in terms of travel and all to the to the Apple keyboards that's that's on the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. But it also has the extended keyboard layout. So it's got the numpad. But I also really like it because it has this um, uh, it has the solar pad up at the top. And we were talking, I think, before the show, and I don't remember if it was you or David, somebody had to plug something in um, because the, the battery was dead. Yeah,
1: I had to plug in my Apple keyboard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah you had to plug in your Apple keyboard because the battery was dead. And I never, with this solar charger, never, ever, ever have to worry about um, plugging in this keyboard to charge. In fact, I've one of the things that frustrates me is I've got this Logitech, just a basic performance MX mouse sitting here. And over the years, the battery has, has weakened a little bit. And I, I think I have to charge the batteries about every two weeks now. I need to look and see if I can get a replacement battery for this. But I'm sitting here looking at it now and it's on its last bar. So if somebody remind me at the end of the show, and I'll plug this in before I, I, I leave. <laughs> um, but I I almost wonder if Logitech or somebody could put a little solar panel on the top of this mouse. I would love it. You know, I, I realize my hand would be covering it some of the time. But for you know, during the day when it's sitting at my desk, it could certainly be you know slurping up a little charge or something.
1: And and Casey, just because I'm a a completionist, are you team trackpad or team mouse? Oh, team mouse,
2: 100%.
0: Now, you're not using that magic mouse, are you? Oh, yes, I am. Everywhere. Yeah, uh,
2: Yeah, you know, so ergonomically, it's a disaster. Just full stop. It's a total disaster ergonomically. The problem I have with it, or well, the reason I'm stuck with it, I guess I should say, is because I haven't yet used any other kind of mouse that supports switching between spaces easily. I do know they exist. I am not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying on the Magic Mouse you can take two fingers and swipe left and right. And that's the same as on a magic tra- trackpad, taking three fingers and swiping left and right. And that will move you between these virtual desktops, which I believe is, are, they're called spaces in, in macOS. I use these heavily, both at work and at home. And so not being able to go back and forth between these desktops would completely neuter me. And I know that there are, there are mice that exist that you can program buttons to do the key- or the keystroke or whatever in order to do that, But I've not personally used one yet. And because of that, I am addicted to the Magic Mouse, despite the fact that I wish it was way more bulbous like your Performance MX is.
1: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting to me that you're using spaces on a 27-inch computer. Oh, absolutely. What do you do with spaces on a 27-inch computer? <laughs> well, so this this
2: is a real Mac Power Users uh, pro tip here. So uh, I have a space for podcasting when I'm doing it. So right now on my 27-inch iMac, I have um, Skype in the upper left. I have... Chrome, which is kind of uh, reserved only for when I need flash or podcasting related things. I have Audio Hijack, which I'm using to record the audio for this. And were this show being broadcast live, I would have Colloquy, which is an IRC client in the bottom left. And so there's kind of four panes on the screen. Um, That is one entire space. Then adjacent to that is my blogging space, which is Uh, Visual Studio Code, which I use to work on my blog, which is uh, half the screen, the left-hand half of the screen. The right-hand half is split in two. The top half is Safari. And it's only a couple of tabs ever. And it's only um, the local version of my blog as I'm testing things, as I'm proofreading things. And then the published version of my blog, which happens to be at caseylist.com. And that's where I can see when things have been published and blah, blah, blah. And then on the bottom right-hand corner of the space is a terminal window that I use both to run a local version of my blog, to upload uh, updates to Heroku where it's hosted, etc. And then moving left to yet another space is kind of my general dumping ground of here's Safari, here's TweetBot, here's deliveries and all the other kind of junk I use day to day.
1: Okay. Well, so you're not making full screen apps though.
2: Uh, actually, yes, it's because I forgot to mention the final space, which is Skype and messages, uh, both of which full are full screened with messages taking up the right about third of the screen and Skype taping, taking up the left two thirds of the screen. So that's kind of my like communication s- space. Then I have my blogging space right now. I have my podcasting space and then I have my like web browsing and general junk
1: space. That, that makes sense because in your mind, you know where things are you don't have to dig around for windows. You're like, okay, I need to get over to podcasting or over to blogging or whatever. Mm-hmm, exactly.
2: And I do a similar thing at work. Uh, at work, because the monitors we use are, I think, 1080. So they're not the greatest monitors in the world. I do have two external monitors. and I run my MacBook Pro clamshelled. Um, But I do similar things where each screen has a series of spaces that are pertinent to my work. So typically like Xcode, which is the software I use to write apps, that will be on the screen that's closer to the front of my face, um, which happens to be the left of the two of them. That will be there. A GitHub cl- or a Git client will be also full screen there. And then the right screen is where I have the same setup with Skype and messages. And additionally, that's where kind of the dumping ground is of, um, of general web browsing and, and stuff like that. And I also run Chrome full screen at work, which we'll talk about in a minute, because uh, work is all in on Google Apps.
1: All right, well we definitely want to get to work and some of your iOS stuff as well. But but since you were last here, you became a dad. And you're a geek, too. And I'm curious. <laughs> we don't we don't need to turn it into an hour long cuz I know we've already gone down the dad route a little bit here, but the um but where is the state of tech for uh, geek dads out there and moms?
2: Uh, and so uh, bad.
1: Oh, is it bad? Oh, it's so bad.
2: Oh, so it's too bad. Uh, so here's the thing, like in the same way that if you want to rent a space for an event, and if, you, if you're doing it for a Mac Power Users Meetup, it will be some sum of money. If you're doing it for a wedding, it's twice that same price, just because it's a wedding. If you wanted to buy a video surveillance monitor to watch over a room in your house, or perhaps the front of your house, it would be maybe $100, bucks, let us say to do a baby monitor that has all the same functions as a video surveillance monitor, but for babies, it's $200. And it's just, nothing is good. Everything is junk. And really what you're doing is choosing the least junky of everything, which is really annoying. So I've put up a couple of posts over the last two years, um, and I can uh, provide links for you guys to put in the show notes. One is baby stuff we use, and one is toddler stuff we've used. And The problem with these is that really they're a collection of what's least crummy. And I actually have to update um, the baby stuff one, because the very first thing on the list is our baby monitor, which we were using until recently, and it happened to be a Motorola MBP43 baby monitor. Um, That had a... I forget what you call the, the connector, but it's one of the things where it's kind of a tube and the, and the monitor part. So the connector coming from the wall, the power connector coming from the wall is kind of a tube. And the monitor had like a pole that the tube would envelop. Does that make any sense at all? I, there's a term for it. I can't remember what it is. Um, a lot of older com- or the computers I used to use, like ThinkPads, for example, the power supply would be a very similar thing. Well, anyway, we were using that that monitor for 2 years almost and we dropped the monitor part so the part that has the screen on it and and all of a sudden the receptacle the pole that is within the monitor snapped off and it fell inside the monitor so that was that. We have to buy a new monitor now. Now the new, the one we bought. Um, I don't have the name of it in front of me, and if I recall, I'll have I'll send a link to you guys to put it in the show notes. But it seems now that we've received it that it's basically the same exact thing, despite not being a Motorola anymore. It's like an infant baby or something like that. I forget what it's called. So the software looks almost identical, although albeit a little newer. However. It is powered by one of those teeny tiny slimline uh, USB ports, the one that a lot of Android phones use. I'd never get the. Name right, but it's one of the little, it probably is micro USB. And so that I prefer so far because, among other things, that means I can just plug it into my Mac when, when I'm, you know, maybe Aaron's out and I'm working on the computer or maybe, you know, she's taking a break from being a mom, which she does full time. Um, and so I'm, I've got the monitor. And so I can just plug a traditional micro USB cable into my Mac and into the monitor to keep it powered, which is amazing. So uh, I need to update this post to say that the Motorola is a piece of garbage and <laughs> that this new one is better.
0: Well, not if you don't throw it on the floor. That's
2: true. But you have to understand that anything baby related, even for the adults, is going to end up getting dropped constantly. Um, but it's, it's funny because some of the best stuff we've found is some of the lowest tech. So uh, as a great example... You know, traditionally in the past, uh, if if your infant or even toddler had uh, a bunch of snot in their nose, you would take like a ball and you squeeze the ball, you stick this little tip into their nose and release the ball. So it kind of, the the, the air flowing back into the ball will.
0: It's a little suction thingy.
2: uh, Yeah, a little. Yeah, exactly. It will hopefully suck some of that snot into this ball. Somebody told us about this thing called a nose frida, N O S E F R I D A, which I think is like Swedish or something like that. And, and, Imagine something about the size of like a marker for a kid, but it has a tube coming off of it. And what you do is you stick the end of that tube in your mouth and you stick this quote unquote marker into the kid's nose and you suck in as hard as you can. It is the most revolting thing to describe. And and, and before you use it, you're like, no way this is going to work. It's a
0: miracle.
2: It works so well and it's so low tech. And there's a little filter to make sure you don't, you know, sucking your kids boogers, but
0: you're you're sucking the snot out of your kids nose. Yep.
2: Yep. Uh, On my on my page about baby stuff we use, I literally called it the snot sucker, because that's effectively what you're doing. But I tell you what, that thing works like magic.
1: It's amazing. I, I remember once when my kid started vomiting you know, this baby. And I just, just used my shirt and my hand to catch it all, you know, so it didn't end up all over the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And, and I realized, oh yeah, when you're a parent, you just do crazy stuff. Yep. <laughs> I swore
2: before we had Declan that I would never go to work with like puke stains on my shirt. And that lasted maybe three weeks or something like that. It was almost immediately that I gave up on that. To bring this back to Mac and iOS power users, um, the one app there, the one, there are a couple of apps, actually, I should say that we really, really liked. And I, I can't recommend enough for new, parents, one of which is an app called Baby Connect. And it's $5. um, And what it lets you do is it lets you track um, what your what your infant has done. So in the very beginning, you have to track well, how many times have they peed? And how many times have they pooped? And how many times have they eaten and all of these different things. And Baby Connect does a really good job of letting you keep track of that quickly and easily. So I, I it's uh, well, the last I used, it, we haven't used it in about a year, but the last I used it, it was hideous to look at, but it functioned beautifully. And what was great about it was you, we can each have our own like accounts. And so we each have it installed on Aaron and I have it installed on each of our phones, but they're synced with each other. You know, we would get push notifications when things happened. So I, for example, could be at work and see that Declan took a 20 minute nap that day and know that when I come home, I got to just drop everything and give Aaron a break because she's going to be really tired um, so I can't recommend that enough. And then another thing that a lot of parents do is that they'll get um, a, a noise, like a white noise machine, so that they don't have to be just silent all the time when their when their kid is sleeping. And um, I think it's called Sleep Pillow or something like that. Shoot, I, oh yes, Sleep Pillow. And at the time uh, I wrote this post, it was two dollars. Um, and all it is is a white noise machine, and it's and if you have like probably the three of us do. If you have an old iOS device in the house, like I had this on my 3GS for the longest time, just install this app on there. And suddenly you have an effectively free white noise machine because my 3GS at the time Declan was born was just sitting collecting dust and it worked
0: really, really well. And we still use that, although not on a 3GS to this day. So let me warn you about this because my parents, I always had a fan in my room when I was a kid. And it was just one of those things, you know, for white noise. Um, because my dad slept with a fan, my mom and that you know they always had a fan, and so they you know you just do what you know, and so they figured the baby needs a fan, you know. To this day, I cannot sleep without a fan. In fact, I have I have my fan I have a fan in my bedroom, um, that's connected to a WeMo switch, and that is the best alarm clock in the morning because I have that WeMo switch set to turn off at 6 a.m. And if I am not up by 6 a.m., I will wake up at 6 a.m. when that fan <laughs> turns off.
2: That's really funny, and Erin actually is the exact same way, and her entire family is that way. If they don't have a fan running, they they are not sleeping, and so yeah, it is a trade off, and and there there certainly is is that issue, but. For our own sanity, we'd rather have, you know, something to keep him hopefully asleep. Um, but it, it's certainly a trade off without a doubt. Yeah.
0: No, I'm just I'm just giving you a hard time. But.
1: My last point on this stuff. I, I'm a great uncle, which is really weird for me, because when I was growing up, my great uncles were ancient old people.
0: <laughs> but the, uh,
1: I'm a great uncle and my, my nephews and nieces are having babies. And so as the nerd, when when I go visit these babies, I, I'm also checking out the tech. The thing I can't get over is the user interface on all, because there's a bunch of app-related baby stuff. There, there's cameras that have apps. I mean, everything has an app now. And universally, they're all terrible. So I I don't know. As a developer, it seems like there's an opportunity there.
2: (laughs) Oh, there certainly (laughs) is. But the thing of it is, is that when I really, really want to fix that problem is when I'm getting no sleep and I'm completely swamped with being a new parent. And then now, two years on, while I was complaining about not getting enough sleep (laughs) earlier, but generally speaking, you know, Declan sleeps really well through the night. And so I uh, now it's not really a problem to me so i'm like yeah whatever i don't really care anymore it's, but you ex- you're exactly right and somebody should swoop in and just fix these problems and and make apps to fi- to 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 do these things that aren't visual disasters but i don't know it's not going to be me not today anyway
0: let me ask you generally do do you think it's better or do you think it makes sense to buy some of these baby specific applications like the baby specific monitor or the baby specific camera versus just buying kind of the best in class of this and using it for your baby? Or do you think there's a lot of difference?
2: Yeah, you know, when it comes to like, the video monitor, that's kind of tough, because I haven't surveyed the the, the landscape since two years ago. But at At the time that Declan was born, it was becoming popular to have Wi-Fi enabled baby monitors that you could use your phone to to watch. So you don't necessarily need to keep this physical device with you. You just use your phone that's presumably already with you. But in this one case, I think having a unitasker and something that's built for this purpose is actually useful because we know that we have this, this box that it will always show a picture of Declan as long as we have the screen turned on. And no matter what, as long as the device is on, we will be able to hear what's going on in his room. And the latency is almost zero because it's all, you know, hardware. There's no, there's no real software except the firmware involved in it. And we don't need to worry about you know, latency connecting to the phone or perhaps some video being transcoded to a format that the phone will understand. Uh, we personally don't have any desire to have this thing accessible from outside the house. So we don't really need an Internet of Things kind of scenario there. I've heard a lot of horror stories, especially early on when this became popular a couple of years ago, about many of these Wi-Fi enabled ones being Completely security sieves. You know, they they were. It was easy to break into them, and maybe that's not true. But that's certainly not true now. But it certainly was true then. And to me, in this case, something like a monitor that's so important. I would recommend just ponying up the money as much as it kills me and getting a unitasker. But other things, like I was saying, the white noise machine, the tracking apps, absolutely explore what's available. And to be fair, you know, it's been a long time since I've surveyed the market for these sorts of things. Maybe there are ones that you use your iPhone that are much better than than they were two years ago. But I don't know. I think if I were to do it over today, I'd probably still get a unitasker.
0: I'm going to take a moment to thank our next sponsor for this episode, and that is MindNode. MindNode makes mind mapping easy. I gotta tell ya. I wasn't huge into mind maps before. I never really understood them. I was much more of an outline person, and I do love my outlining. But the way that mind mapping works is it's a visual representation of your ideas. It starts with a central thought, and then it helps you grow out from there. And it allows you to brainstorm and organize your thoughts in an intuitive way so that you can focus on the idea behind it. And mind mapping really clicked for me on the iPad. Something about being able to physically touch those ideas that you've just put down on the iPad and move them around and figure out how they connect with each other and add additional little branches to your tree. Something about that made the whole concept between the mind map a whole lot easier for my brain to grasp. And mind notes can be an effective tool for helping you look at something in a whole different way. At least that's how it's helped me. Because with a mind map, you're free to think about the content of what you want to talk about and you can figure out the layout later. Just getting your ideas down on paper, or in this case, on the iPad, really helps. And you can swirl them around, literally swirl them around with your hands to your heart's content. MindNode application is available from the Mac App Store. It's available on the iPad, the iPhone, and on the Mac. You can also download a free trial from their website over at MindNode.com. So you can try it out before you buy it and see if the concept of mind node works for you. You can take your mind maps with you wherever you want to go. You can export them to a PDF. OPML, Task Paper, CSV, Text Outline, and even more. You can also export your tasks to Apple Reminders and OmniFocus. MindNode is fully optimized and ready for iOS 10 and supports iCloud syncing, so no matter where you are or what device you're using MindNode on, you're always going to have access to your mind maps. And this guy, Max Sparky, even did a whole series of screencast tutorials for them, so if you want to get an idea of what mind maps are, how they work, and quite frankly, learn from a mind mapping master, you can head over to mindnode.com and check out their screencasting series, where you'll find screencasts on topics like why you should consider mind mapping, brainstorming, organized workflow, task support, and more. So go check them out at mindnode.com. And thanks again to Mindnode for their kind support of Mac Power users.
1: You know, Casey, I listened to you on your excellent podcast, the Accidental Tech Podcast. That's You're the you're the feature of that show, right? <laughs> Something
2: yeah. like that. Yeah.
1: And the um and you guys talk a lot about Macs and one thing I rarely hear you talk about much is the uh, the iPhone and the iPad where does iOS fit in your life these days
2: You know it's weird because I kind of feel like I'm in, I'm, I'm like the in-between in between um, in Connected, which is another show on Relay, with, with Steven, who is all Mac and uses iOS devices for sure, but you know, his heart is entirely in the Mac, I, I think. And then Federico and Mike like, would ignore the Mac entirely if at all possible. I think Federico the most so, Mike le- a little bit less so. I'm kind of in the middle. I feel like I'm happiest and can get the most things done the quickest when I'm sitting on my beloved 27-inch iMac, but the reality of the situation is I'm not going to pick up this 27-inch iMac and bring it around. I'm not going to sit with it in Starbucks. You know, so so I've had to for better and for worse adapt and be able to use my iOS devices most of the time and now not having a laptop that I that that's mine that I that I can easily use, you know, or that uh, that's hard to describe, but, you know, my, my work laptop is basically just a work laptop, like we were talking about earlier. So it doesn't feel like home, even though it is my machine. So I'm not usually going to sit with that on the couch. If anything, I'm going to sit with my iPad. And so over time I've had to really embrace iOS and for anything other than quote unquote, real work, generally speaking, I'm just using my phone, which I, I currently have a, um, uh, 128 gig matte black iphone 7 or my ipad mini which is a well, as we record i think it's a fourth generation whatever the most modern one is um ipad mini i believe it's 32 gigs and it does have cellular which i personally can't recommend enough but may, may or may not be for everyone and generally speaking if i'm traveling and don't need to do work I'll just bring my iOS devices. I'll bring my iPad, maybe with the keyboard, maybe not, and my iPhone and that that's enough for me.
0: One of the things that I feel a little bond with you is for you you haven't felt the need uh, to switch completely over to this iOS lifestyle. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the iOS lifestyle that many of our friends, um, David, have embraced. But sometimes I feel a little left out because everybody's going all all iOS crazy. And then I hear you and I'm like, okay, Casey's still with me on this one. No,
2: I, I completely agree. And uh, in a lot of ways, I kind of wish I could abandon the Mac, not because I dislike it, but because the thought of just this little, um, how big are the minis? Like seven-inch devices, whatever it is. Yeah, I
0: think it's seven-inch, seven point nine.
2: Yeah, there you go. So this this almost eight-inch device. Imagining that as my only computer or my primary computer, that just sounds really cool. As a matter of fact, just uh, earlier this week, I was listening to Upgrade with again Mike Hurley and uh, Jason Snell. And Jason was talking about how his primary machine is his iPad Pro and his, well, maybe I'll bring it mach- machine is his Mac. And that seems so backwards to me. And it's not that it's backwards. It's not wrong. It's just backwards from what I'm used to. And, and I kind of am jealous of, of David and, and Jason and their, their iPad lifestyle. But the problem I have with it, and the, the reason I keep coming crawling back to the Mac, is for me... I just feel like everything is so much faster on the Mac. Even browsing the web is so much faster on the Mac for the things I like to do. If I'm sitting there looking at Twitter, no, I'll totally pick up the iPad every time. But for browsing the web and being able to have multiple windows open or many, many, many tabs and having those tabs stay there when I scroll down the page, like silly stuff like that, it just feels like home to me. Whereas I feel like Almost like I'm at mom and dad's house when I'm using an iPad, right? You know, it's familiar and it's sort of home, but there's always something that just gets in my way. And and again, I'm not trying to paint that as a universal picture. It's just that's the way I feel about it. And it sounds like Katie, it seems similar to you too.
0: Well, it's it's more like I've got to stop certain tasks. Don't get me wrong, I love the iPad for I love the iPad for consumption. I love the iPad for Twitter and reading RSS and a lot of those types of things. But I feel like when I come to sit down to do a lot of work tasks or heavier duty tasks on the iPad, I'm always having to stop and think about it and think about, okay, how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to get around this? Or how am I going to navigate this in the most efficient way possible? And with the Mac, I just do it. But on the iPad, I've got to think, okay, well, can I do this? Is this file accessible? Do I, you know, how how am I going to get around this? And I'm going to have to have multiple panes open and how am I going to share this data? But I don't have any of those concerns when I go to the Mac. So I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily, there are a few things, but there are very few things that I can't do on the iPad, very few things. But there are so many things that it's easier to do on the Mac.
1: Okay, so I have two points. I have two points in rebuttal. (laughs) The first is I would say um, that you guys, myself included, grew up using a Mac or a graphical user interface, or maybe even a command line before that. And so this is a new thing and it is not the same thing. And some things will take longer. Some things will be faster, but they're different. So, uh, workflows that you have had ingrained in you, maybe in Katie's case, since you were a, a a very young child. I mean, you started using a Mac, Katie, four, yeah, four. So, oh goodness, so stuff you've been doing your your whole life uh, is going to be different, and it it takes some adjustment. So, if you decide to play around with these things, I think you have to look at it with kind of a sense of experimentation. And say, okay, this will take longer. Let me see a couple different ways to do it and see what that's like. Because, like, a few things that I knew would always take longer on the iPad now or faster on the iPad, which is kind of a surprise to me, I didn't expect that. And the second thing is, I, I, I don't really, and I, maybe I, I encourage it with the questions I ask, but I don't mean it. I, there's, there shouldn't be this sense of tribalism about this stuff. Um, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I prefer using a Mac and that's just fine. Apple makes Macs, they make a lot of them and they're great. And in my case, I really like using my Mac too, but I also like using my iPad when I'm on the road or when I'm out at Starbucks and I can get just about anything done on either one of them. And that to me is what's really amazing, you know? Um, but the, uh, but it, I just wanted to hear where you're at with this. Cause it's been a while. And, um, So you're still using the iPad mini. That's your main iPad.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's the only iPad I have. Um, You know, I hear that there's some really bananas people that live this multi-iPad lifestyle, but I mean, I I can't imagine. What are you
1: doing to me, Casey? Keep going, Casey. You and
0: I, we can tag team this all night
2: long. Oh, goodness. You know, uh, In a way, I understand it. Like when Mike said to me, or maybe it was on a podcast, he said to me, look, where you have a MacBook Pro and an iPad, I have a big iPad and a smaller iPad. Half of me thought that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And half of me thought, no, actually, that makes sense. And so we can get into a turf war about this. But the the reality of the situation is, is that, yeah, my iPad mini is the only one I have. I am now that I'm seeing and I'm using multitasking on the iPad mini more and more and doing that on the mini is kind of hard because you basically have a, an app that's, or you have two apps side by side, and they're either like one's phone size and one's almost iPad size, or they're both kind of like phone size. And it's just a little bit awkward. So I've been kicking around whenever it is I upgrade my iPad. Maybe I should get the traditional iPad size. I, I don't see myself getting an um, a big iPad Pro anytime soon, but I could see myself in a baby Pro over time, especially since, as I've been espousing earlier this episode, I really do like having a physical keyboard with my iPad. I don't actually connect my keyboard to it that terribly frequently. Generally, it's only when I travel, but the thought of having it, the what is it, the smart keyboard? Is that the official name for it? Yeah. 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 So the thought of having a smart keyboard always or generally attached to my iPad is really appealing. And right now, as we record this, there's no such thing for the mini. So time will tell. We'll see what what it, what it comes of it. But I don't know. I love my iPad mini. I don't want to give up the size, but there's a lot of things drawing me to the Baby Pro.
0: I have the Baby Pro, the 9.7, and I did not, I held off a long time on the smart keyboard because I didn't think that I would use it. And I didn't think I would like the idea of a keyboard attached to my iPad all the time. And in fairness, of course, you can rip it right off and it doesn't have to be attached all the time. But I'm finding that I'm keeping it attached pretty regularly. And, you know, just this afternoon, that that is what I used in meetings with clients to take notes is, you know, I popped it open on the smart keyboard and it it's a really surprisingly good keyboard. Yeah. And it's not too dissimilar from the Magic
2: Keyboard that I love from everything. I've, uh, I've only used them a handful of times, but it seemed like a not quite as good, because there's just so little space there, not quite as good version of the Magic Keyboard, but still a reasonable interpretation of the Magic Keyboard that's even lighter and even thinner. I'm willing to make that trade.
1: So I was in a Starbucks this morning. I had my big, ba- big boy iPad out and I was working on kind of a complex document and word and I had a bunch of track changes and basically the whole width of the screen was being used mm-hmm. and I needed to reference a PDF. I just needed to read it. So I pulled out my other iPad. I'm reading the the PDF on one and looking at the screen on another one. And I just happened to look up and there was this woman looking at me like I was a complete lunatic. So (laughs) I'm probably not the uh, perfect example for that. So
2: the question is, what would get you what would get weirder looks you with your multi iPad lifestyle or me if I actually did bring my 27 inch iMac to Starbucks? I think I would win that 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 terrible competition, but I think it'd be a close call.
1: Yeah, I think you would, too. Hey, let's talk a little bit about Google, Casey. Mm-hmm. You went, so you took this job and you said that they're running a lot of the business off Google apps. Yep. Yep. That's absolutely right. Now, as a traditional Windows developer, I'm pretty sure that's probably never been the case before you. Before you,
2: No, no, it hasn't. Uh, I, am I, in, I think my entire career... I'm trying to remember any time that it wasn't. I'm pretty sure my entire career, I've been on the uh, Office suite, including um, exchange for email So that mean, and, and calendars. So that means uh, Outlook, basically. And when I arrived at my current employer, they are all in on Google Apps. And that's, I think, both a blessing and a curse. Um, I like it for the most part. I like not having Office on my computer because I do don't particularly care for the Mac OS versions of Office. I've heard very good things about the iOS versions. And David, you were just saying you were using Word earlier. Um, But I've not cared for the ones on the Mac. And so not having Office installed is kind of great. I don't mind the web interfaces for most of these things, so that, that's a pass, I guess, and a pass-fail system. Um, Hangouts generally works pretty well. That's the video conferencing software. It does fall down in a couple of ways, but especially if you have a lot of people in the same meeting. But generally speaking, it's it's pretty smart and works pretty well. But the most interesting thing about this to me is that it's rendered my computer kind of a dumb terminal where I used to have like office documents, even though I'm a developer, you know, you still have to do spreadsheets and, and and requirements documents and presentations. And I would have these office documents strewn across my computer. And now, really, the only thing that is on my work laptop that I care about is the code that I'm working on. And even that is in GitHub. So it's occurred to me recently that this MacBook Pro that you know, I didn't have to buy, but presumably it's like a couple thousand dollar MacBook Pro is in some ways kind of a dumb terminal. It, you know, I, I'm running Xcode locally on it. It's not like I'm doing some crazy Citrix thing or, you know, remote desktop or VNC sort of thing where I'm connecting to another machine to write code. But other than writing code pretty much everything else is happening in chrome and and that's also kind of weird because i'm a safari kind of guy but you know since the entire business is running on on google stuff i typically use chrome at, well my, my chrome is my default browser on my work mac and most of my work stuff is done in chrome on the google suite and it's just been peculiar not bad i wouldn't say but peculiar
0: now, are you using Google Docs just like in the browser or I know Google um, has the, the app for Mac that makes Google Drive a, a little more Dropboxy?
2: Yeah, I I don't use that. Uh, Generally speaking, I'm not doing that much in docs. And typically, it's more consumption than creation, or at least it has been so far. But no, I haven't installed the Google Drive Dropbox equivalent app thing. Uh, I haven't really had much of a need for it. Because like I was saying before, you know, it's really sufficient is the best word I can I can think of it. I, I wouldn't say I feel joy using Google apps in the browser. But I don't often feel like I'm being hindered either. And we actually use um, Google Docs for show notes for, well, this program, but we use it for ATP and and my other show, Analog. And the the Google uh, Docs app for iOS is pretty decent. I mean, I wouldn't say it's great, but it's, it's, more than sufficient for the sorts of things I ask it to do, and 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 that's true of the web apps as well. On the desktop, they they allow me to get my job done, and I wouldn't say they generally get in the way. And I mean, I guess to some degree, that's all I can ask. I don't love using them, but I certainly don't I, I don't begrudge using them either.
1: Well, one of the the knocks against it that I'd I'd probably agree with is they're they're good for writing words on a screen. They're not so great for printing something that you're going to print out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. It's interesting how the world is kind of evolving around that. It Just like looking in education, we get a lot of teachers that listen to the show and we hear from them all the time that the kids turn in their papers now, not by printing them out on dead trees, but just pressing a button in Google Docs. And then the, the teacher has access to it and the p- papers are read online. And it, all this stuff is just, it just never leaves Google Docs. Yeah, that's so wild. It, it is interesting to me to see as this evolves because I, I think that, Katie and I are going to be dinosaurs in that regard with our, our, our jobs actually involve printing things, but I think that's becoming increasingly less important. Um, But, but I I'd agree with you. I think Google docs has, could be so much better, you know, the, the underlying function of, Hey, two or three people can work in this at one time or even more. And it just works is amazing, but there's so much not to like about it. I mean, we work in it for the show and just like, setting the formatting and everything of a document it just every week i, I look at this thing and just bang my head against the wall <laughs> but there's some google services that i think you're a pretty big fan of i know that you've you've told me that you you're uh you're all in with google photos
2: oh i don't know if all in effectively encapsulates it i am in love with google photos um i was a previous everpix user may it rest in peace then i was a picture life user may it rest in peace. And now here I am with Google Photos. And I went kind of begrudgingly. So you're going to kill it. Yeah, apparently. it's Well, between us and the connected guy, or myself and the connected guys, it, it's going to die. It's only a matter of time because we we apparently have whatever the opposite of the Midas touch is, I guess, a kiss of death for photo sharing services. But uh, I love Google Photos. And I came to it somewhat begrudgingly. I don't think I'm too bad about having a tinfoil hat when it comes to the Google services. I mean, my personal emails on Google apps as well. Um, now, to be fair, I pretty much only ever access it via the mail apps on on iOS and macOS. But nevertheless, it is still Google behind the scenes. So Google has all my email and now they have all my photos. But I tell you what, especially for Google Photos, it is amazing what it can do. And I think Apple is starting to come uh, in, 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 see them eye to eye on some of the things that have happened in iOS 10 and Mac OS Sierra with, with being able to search by kind of looser and fuzzier terms. But it is amazing that I can put in um, like, as an example, this is a weird story, but just bear with me for a second. Uh, I used to drive a Subaru and I sold it a few years back because I had gotten a new car. And I was talking to some friends about my car and how, Oh, you know, I, whatever happened to that thing? Did you get, you know, obviously you got rid of it. Where did you sell it to a person? And I said, no, no, no. I sold it to CarMax and then they sold it presumably to somebody else. But as it turns out, I, I stumbled across the VIN, you know, a few months ago and, and I did a Google search on the car's vehicle identification number, the VIN. And I found out that apparently it was in an accident and the thing caught on fire and it was ridiculous. And I saved off these images of my old Subaru that had caught on fire and got in an accident, which made me sad. But I was trying to show them these pictures, and I didn't know where I'd kept them on my, you know, on my local machine. But I knew that those pictures were somewhere. But I went to Google Photos, and I think I had typed in car fire and came up short. But I typed in car accident, and sure enough, there they were immediately. And being able to do that is just amazing. Or being able to type in San Francisco, California, to see pictures that I had taken around WWDC time is just amazing. And that search, I mean, I know it's, it's probably very boring to hear somebody espousing Google search abilities, but until you see it with your own stuff and with your own pictures, it doesn't really hit home how unbelievably powerful it is to be able to search on just esoteric things like waves in, in order to find pictures of the beach. Just the, it, it changes everything when you can have access to any of your really any of your memories by just typing some words in a keyboard.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because Apple has come down the road a bit since you got into this and they're close. But like just even like while you were talking, uh, I can search beach and I can find 96 pictures in my library. And then I can also search, you know, a specific beach like Newport or Laguna or one of the many Southern California beaches I visit. Um, But I cannot search waves, whereas I suspect on Google you probably can. And I've always felt like, um, at least for the time being, Apple is going to tag along with this, but they aren't going to lead on this stuff. And, you know, so you have to make a choice as a user, you know, what do you want to do? I, I, I'm okay with the Apple photos. I like that the integration with everything, it's just so nice to have it all by one vendor. And, and, you know, you're, you, you're old enough, Casey, you remember what it was like when we used to try and make things work with other things and they never worked. And I think that's part, part of my reason for sticking with Apple on this. I also think there's some privacy things I like. I, I, Apple is not going to be looking at the photos ever. You know, it, it's not in their business model. It's the opposite of their business model. So I, I have a little bit of a privacy thing there, but I'm not, I'm not a tinfoil hat guy. Yeah. I, I have plenty of stuff in Google too. In fact, because I write about the stuff, I have my photos in Google too, because I compare the libraries, but, but it, it is, um, you know, you're not alone. I think one of the biggest selling points for Google Photos is that it's free.
2: Well, it is with restrictions. So I pay um, $10 a month for really, strictly speaking, it's it's space in Google Drive, but, but food, uh, Google Photos leverages that space. So it's free if you allow them to compress the pictures that you upload. Now, I don't treat this as a backup service, strictly speaking, but in a pinch, in a pinch, I want it to be able to be. And so because of that, I pay them to to take not only my full resolution uncompressed, well, I'm I'm delivering JPEGs to Google Photos, but they're not further compressing them, which they would do if you chose their free plan. And additionally, I am uploading some raw files from our big camera, which are, you know, 15 megs a a, a picture, and those are going in as raw files to Google Photos as well. So you are right, there is a fully featured free tier, but I'm paying for the completely unmolested, exactly what you sent to Google version
1: of it. So if you're doing that with Apple Photos, you'd probably paint about the same.
2: You know, I think that's right. I haven't looked at how big my photo library is, but I think it is comparable. And to your point, I don't know if I would have necessarily gone to Google Photos if I had made this jump now, but because I made the jump prior to, to the really impressive advancements that Apple has made in iOS 10 and Sierra, I made this decision, you know, several months ago. And... If I were to do it again today, I'd probably at least start with Apple for those same privacy reasons, but I'm not sure if I would have ended up going to Google Photos anyway, because it is just that impressive. And actually, as we like to say on ATP, real-time follow-up, CarFire does indeed work. It didn't a couple of months ago when I tried it, but CarFire shows me these pictures of my poor burnt Subaru, uh, as well as car accident too. So it's just so phenomenally impressive what this can do.
1: Yeah, So for me, it's like the uh, let's say that it has some percentage of the effectiveness of Google. Let's say it's 80 mm-hmm, percent.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and but you also have the advantage of it being integrated in the operating system and and no creepiness at all. Um, is it worth it to you to go with 80 percent? or Do you want the full 100 percent go to Google? I don't think there's really a wrong answer to that. Um, no, I completely agree. It seems to me like that's the kind of the inflection point. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Tame your inbox at sanebox.com MPU and get $10 off any plan. Because of the nature of email, it's really hard to get a handle on it. You can't control the amount of people sending you email. If you were a billionaire, you'd probably hire somebody to monitor your email and sort it for you. But we're not billionaires. That's where SaneBox comes in. Samebox will be that assistant that goes through your email for you. It'll sort out what's important and what's not. Then when you go to look at your email, it'll already be sorted for you, so you can just deal with the most important email. The way they pull this off is by looking at the header information in your email. That's the subject matter and the person the email comes from. They don't look at the contents of the email, but with just those two bits of information, Samebox can do an amazing job of figuring out what's most important to you. It keeps the important stuff in your inbox and moves the other stuff to other boxes it can create for you, like the Sane Later folder. That's where it puts less important emails. I check that once a day and it's just fine. You can also create dedicated email boxes for things like newsletters or marketing papers. And those you don't even need to look at once a day. You can stretch those out a long time. That's just one of the many features you can get with Samebox. They also have great features like the Sane Black Hole, the ability to snooze emails, so you can say, give this back to me in two days or two hours or two weeks. And they also have Sane Reminders that allows you to have an email automatically remind you if someone doesn't reply. If I send Katie an email and blind copy it to oneweek at samebox.com and she doesn't reply in a week, Samebox will let me know. Most recently, they've added a new service called Sane Forward. It's an easy way to automate email forwarding to your favorite third-party apps and team members. With St. Forward, you can do things like automatically turn emails into tasks, automatically forward email receipts to expensify, or even just automatically email certain emails to friends and colleagues. Because all of this is server-based, it will work with any email application, so you don't have to buy a specialized app to get all these tools. So there you have it. Samebox is that assistant for your email that everybody wants. Head over to samebox.com/mpu and get a ten dollars discount. And thank you, Samebox, for sponsoring the Mac Power Users. So Casey, you're uh, you're on Mac Power Users. Um, I wanted to find out what are the apps that are delighting you these days.
2: Yeah, you know, there's a bunch that. I think are kind of the old favorites that everyone talks about. So as a couple of examples, 1Password, Dropbox, uh, Day One, which we'll actually maybe talk about a little bit on iOS. But, um, but I was trying to think of before the show, what's some slightly less run-of-the-mill answers that I can come up with? And I can come up with kind of two themes. And one of them is um, dealing with my pictures, like we were just talking about. And um, I I have a uh, Micro Four Thirds camera, which is kind of somewhere between a point and shoot and a full on DSLR, and that camera can, in concert with my iPhone, geotag the photos it takes. So if I have the presence of mind to tell my iPhone, "Hey, start tracking my location," and then snap a bunch of pictures on the on the big camera. I can then sync the location readings that the iPhone took with the camera and the camera will mate and match everything together and it will geotag the pictures that I've taken. So uh, th- it will know what pictures were taken in San Francisco versus, you know, Virginia or what have you.
1: And that's an app from the camera manufacturer?
2: Sorry, yes, that's correct. So my camera happens to be an Olympus and this app is, is Olympus. I think it's called OI Share. Um, so it's, it's made to work in concert with the camera. But there's a lot of times, particularly, when I'm just around the house, or maybe I'm at my you know my in-laws house, or my parents house where I don't bother doing that, because I'm, I'm always going to be within, you know, a few feet of, of their house for the entire time I'm taking all these pictures. And so I don't bother, you know, starting the app on the phone and, and having a geotag. But having that location information in these pictures is super duper important to me because I find it's not unusual for me to do a search in Google Photos based on location. And you were alluding to this earlier, David, with searches for like Laguna Beach and whatnot. So how do I, you know, kind of square the circle and, and fill this gap when I've taken a bunch of pictures on the big camera that don't have any geolocation information, but I want that information to exist by the time these photos get loaded into my into my repository on my Synology. And so there's a free app called Geotag. Um, and what that lets you do is you drag and drop from Finder a bunch of f- images into the left-hand pane of the app and... On the right hand side, it's split in half and on the top right, it'll show you that image as you select, as you select each of them on that, that are uh, listed in the left hand pane. And on the bottom right, it shows a Google map and you can search for an address and you can drop a pin and you can in mass or one by one, select photos and add geolocation information. And so I found that to be super helpful. So my workflow when I'm taking photos off of the SD card off the camera is to go through and delete the ones that are garbage. And then once I've got the list of all the ones that I think are good, I'll add, I'll I'll at least look at them in geotag and confirm that they do have information. And in the case that they don't, I'll do my best guess effort to try to figure out where those pictures were taken. And and then at that point, once I'm done with geotag, that's when it will get loaded onto the Synology and then in turn into Google Photos.
1: So now are you doing that uh, are they RAW photos or are they JPEGs?
2: Uh, I shoot in JPEG plus RAW, so I get both. And generally speaking, what I'll do is anything that I think is a particularly good picture or a particularly meaningful picture, I'll keep both JPEG and RAW on the slim chance that I want to go back and do some further edits or if I want to get it blown up to be you know the size of a house for some reason or whatnot. Um, but generally speaking, I will toss all of the RAW files and only keep the JPEGs.
1: That's good because some of these apps that apply Geotag data will kind of mess with the file. You know, it depends on sidecar data. You know, the problem with photos is there's so many different ways the the data can be stored. So Geotag doesn't mess around with the actual photo integrity.
2: It hasn't yet. uh, You know, to be fair, it's a free app. So, you know, I guess you could say you get what you pay for. But to this to this day, and I'm knocking on my glass desk uh, to this day, it has yet to cause any sort of data loss.
1: Yeah, When I used to do more of this, I used an app called Huda Geo that was pretty good for that.
2: Yeah, this is not the only solution, but it was free. And it's a, kind of like the unitasker baby monitor. It does one thing and it does it well. And, and that's all, all I really need it for. And I think you can do this in like in the photos app uh, on Sierra. And, and there are many, 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 many ways to, to accomplish this. But this is the one that works for me.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of your other favorite apps on your Mac?
2: Yeah, so another theme that I've gotten into lately is you know, I've just made mention a couple times to this big network attached storage I have at the house. And I found that I've really enjoyed um, digitizing and ripping all of our physical media and loading it onto the Synology so it'll be available via Plex. And
1: That is so useful with a (laughs) two-year-old. Oh, it really is. (laughs) is.
0: Have you gotten to the peanut butter stage yet? Because David says that's what happens is you get peanut butter on all your DVDs.
1: (laughs) No, no,
2: no, not yet. Um, And we've actually, generally speaking, tried to keep him away from movies and TV. He'll watch Sesame Street every day for half an hour. And Declan is a, a little bit weird in that he hates the car. And so... What we'll often but not always do if we're on a trip of more than about 20 minutes is we'll let him use my old iPad mini, um, which coincidentally has Plex on it. And and I am a Plex Pass uh, subscriber, which means I can actually sync content locally onto the device. And so we have a bunch of Sesame Street and Daniel Tiger episodes on his iPad, which... I mean, it sounds so snooty to say my two-year-old has an iPad, but again, t- just to be clear, it's like a whole, it's a hand-me-down uh, first-generation Retina Mini. Um, so anyway,
1: so he has that's okay; it goes with the golden spoon, right? Yeah,
2: right exactly. Um, so uh, on 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 that iPad, uh, there there's some uh, baby content, but but what I what I found myself doing is, I personally, for right or wrong, don't particularly care for having my only access to media in, say, iTunes. And so I don't personally like to buy my movies through iTunes. I know that's kind of... Different and maybe you maybe you think that's bananas, but that's just the way I like. to. That's yeah. pretty
1: normal. A lot of people feel that way. No, you're fine.
2: So that's the way I do it. So typically, we'll buy Blu-rays these days, and so I have a suite of a few apps that I'll go through very quickly that I use in concert in order to get these discs from discs onto the Synology and thus into Plex. And if you're not familiar with Plex, the short which I think you guys have talked about extensively, haven't you? Yeah, we
0: did a we did a show on Plex. Wait, didn't you have a guest that was one of the people who works on Plex or am I making that up? No, we had Todd Olthoff on that show and he did a series of video tutorials on Plex. That's what it was. Okay. yeah, That is what I'm thinking of. I just had
2: the, the person wrong. I'm sorry,
0: Todd. But anyway, uh, I, did,
2: I heard that episode and it was wonderful. So you should definitely check that out. But Plex, you know, in, in short, allows you to watch your media on pretty much any device, any internet connected device, pretty much anywhere. And so a lot of people would might say, well, what is the use of that in general if you're always in your house? Eh, maybe not that much, although the Apple TV app is amazing. But what's really great is if I ever want and want to watch one of these things, one of these movies or TV shows, what have you remotely say in a hotel room or from my parents house or whatever, I can do that too. And depending on the internet connection, they have potentially at full fidelity, which is amazing. So to come back to the point, how do I get these things from a Blu-ray onto my Synology as a, as a compressed version of that Blu-ray? The first thing is make MKV. And that is an app that you, it will read the Blu ray disc connected to your Mac. Uh, I have a Blu ray uh, reader that frankly, is not very good. So I I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But you can find relatively inexpensive Blu-ray readers on Amazon. There's a million of them. Um, So I connect this via USB to my Mac, I use make MKV, and it will suck in a completely uncompressed uh, version of the movie that's guess what stored as an MKV file, which is Matroska video file. Uh, Matroska doll is one of those nesting Russian nesting dolls. And that's where it comes from, because you can stick various file formats in this container. Anyway, the point is it it makes 1 MKV out of this entire movie and it's I just did this the other day for a uh, brand new Peter Gabriel DVD that, or Blu-ray I should say that just came out and I think the the concert which was a couple hours long was like a 35 gig MKV. Now, that's a lot, and that's probably not terribly useful to have something quite that big.
1: But a really good reason to get a terabyte-sized (laughs) iMac. Yeah,
2: right, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so uh, this gentleman, uh, Don Melton, he used to be the head of Safari uh, for Apple, but he is since retired and now just likes to fumble about doing, working on scripts that you use in the command line. And here's a great example of why I can't give up my Mac and go to iOS because of things like this. He writes scripts that you use at the command Line that will transcode these MKVs into either compressed MKVs, or what I tell it to do is make MP4 files, which are much more easily consumable by Apple
1: devices. And much smaller.
2: And much, and much smaller. So they're typically anywhere between three and, say, eight gigs for the same 30 gig, 30 plus gig uncompressed MKV. It takes two to three hours on my pretty much brand new iMac. But the Don's scripts walk this wonderful line of not looking like they're very compressed, but to David's point a moment ago, being considerably more compressed than the raw version. So MKV gets it off the disc onto my computer. The video transcoding scripts, which are, to be fair, a little fiddly, but this is Mac Power users after all. Um, they, they, yeah, we're
1: good. We're good. Bring it up.
2: They will uh, make this super compressed version. Now, for movies... I'll typically stop there. But as I just brought up, I also like concert DVDs or Blu-rays. And we'll often, Aaron and I will often watch them from time to time, you know, maybe after Declan's gone to bed, not very loudly, of course, but we'll watch them. And what's very frustrating to me is... If I really want to hear one particular song from one particular concert film, so let's say I on this this Peter Gabriel DVD or Blu-ray, I keep calling them DVDs that just came out, maybe I would really like to hear you know Salisbury Hill, which is one of his most popular songs. Uh, it, I believe it was Katie, actually, that, that instructed me on how to get to a particular chapter on the Plex Apple TV app. It's real hard. Yeah, that's the thing, is that it's super easy, it's just completely non-discoverable, which is, you just swipe down when on the remote when you're watching the video, and you'll get a, a horizontally scrolling list of all the different chapters, but chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, that's not terribly useful when you're looking at a concert. And so, somehow or another, I stumbled on this app called Subler, S-U-B-L-E-R. And it actually does a lot of different things, including some of this transcoding that these scripts I was talking about previously do. But what's very powerful about Subler is it lets me go in and modify the chapter titles for these chapters, particularly on these concert films, so I can put in the song titles for all these different songs. And it does that. And instead of trying to recompress and and retranscode the entire file, it just modifies that little bit of metadata that's off to the side. And it takes two seconds to write that file. And it's super, super useful for that. So in the case of when I'm ripping a concert DVD or Blu-ray, I'll go through before I move it to the Synology and go through with Subler and mark all the different chapter names. And that's super, super useful. And it makes it super easy with Plex to go to the particular concert I want. And then the particular
1: song that I'd like to hear. So how many concerts have you ripped this way?
2: Oh, goodness. Let's see. Uh, I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. But it's been a bunch for sure. And I'm looking right now. So loading Plex. And then if I look at my concerts section, uh, does it tell me a total? Uh, 34. Now, not all of these are Blu-rays. Some of these are DVDs. But I have 34 different entries in my concert section on Plex. Two of which are Raffi, which is children's music.
1: But well, I, I was going to tell you, Casey, that you know, like for me, I was super into this stuff when my kids were little, and as they got older, because mm-hmm. when kids are little, they'll watch the movie over and over again that <laughs> they find one they love. As they get older, they're like adults, right? They don't, they watch it once or twice. They're fine. So I don't do it so much anymore. But I think you're a lifer, man. You're going to keep doing this. Because you're doing your own personal stuff too.
2: Yeah, it, I mean, the, the, accepting the two Raffi concerts, um, all of this is stuff that Aaron and I listen to, and, and some of it's older, some of it's newer. But th- this is something that that I really enjoy being able to do is just you know seek to the particular song in a particular concert at a moment's notice. And kind of similarly, um, there's another script that uh, is not by Don Melton. I don't know who wrote it, but it's called YouTube hyphen DL for YouTube download that if you have, say, a music video that you really like, that you found on YouTube, it's another command line script that makes it super simple to download that 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 video or perhaps even concert from YouTube and, again, store it within Plex. And, and as another example, um, there's a band I like called Zero Seven. That's the word zero and then the numeral seven. And a while back, I just happened to stumble on a full concert that they did from 2004 at the Glastonbury Festival, and it was on YouTube. It was a, you know an hour and a half long YouTube video, and immediately I ran to YouTube download. I downloaded it. It's got now now I've got this entire file, one file on my computer. Ran it through Subler to add chapters because you can also add them uh, aside from just renaming them, and then I was able to load that in Plex, and now I have that available to me anytime I want.
1: Yeah, I've used this script too. I I think that you know the ability to get a download download a YouTube is super useful.
2: Yeah. And it works for a lot of different websites too. I believe it works for Vimeo and probably a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm not even aware of. So just because it says YouTube DL on the tin doesn't mean that's all it's capable of. And I think we've talked about Plex enough, but suffice it to say, I could go on for the rest of my life about how darn much I like Plex. It is one of my favorite apps in the
1: entire world. It sure is nice having all your media available that way too. you know, just to be able to say, okay, just dial up whatever concert I want to watch. Because I know you like the Raffi like once a week, right?
2: <laughs> you know it's funny you say that, but uh, Declan loves Raffi, and particularly he loves one in, in one specific performance of "Apples and Bananas." So I could probably sing you "Apples and Bananas" in my sleep at this point, because almost any time we're in the car, uh, yeah, I, I also ripped an, an MP3 version of all these songs from this concert, and almost any time we're in the car, it's "Apples and Bananas," "Apples and
1: Bananas." I'm pretty sure I'm the only one on this podcast who's attended a Wiggles concert.
2: <laughs> I, I have not been to Wiggles, though. It wouldn't surprise me if it's in my future. But as a wee lad, I did attend a Raffi concert, which I don't really remember. But this was back in the 80s when he was a really big deal.
0: I don't even know anything that you all are talking about.
2: <laughs> it's probably for the best, I assure you.
0: I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode, Fujitsu. You can find out more information about the entire Fujitsu line of products by heading over to budurl.me slash SSMPU. Fujitsu makes what I personally believe to be the best line of document scanners for your home, for your office, or for even on the go. And it all starts with great software. The Fujitsu ScanSnap software allows you to do so many things, including um, scan documents that are larger than legal size. It will automatically OCR your documents so you can do magical things with the characters that are recognized on pages. It will scan to many cloud services, including Dropbox, Evernote, Google Docs, and more. You can set up multiple profiles, so maybe you want to scan a single page, maybe you want to set it up for batch scanning for large documents, and that even includes software to allow you to scan and organize business cards and receipts. But that's just the software. They make an incredible line of scanner products to go with this amazing software. My personal favorite is the iX500. This is the Mac Daddy scanner. In fact, I've got one on my desk at home, and I just picked up another one for my brand new office. This is a full duplex scanner, meaning when you stick a piece of paper through it, it will scan both sides simultaneously, and it has a 50-sheet feeder, so you can really stack the documents up on there. It will connect to your computer or your iOS device with USB 3.0 or through Wi-Fi, and it will scan upwards of 25 pages per minute. You can scan again to a computer or directly to a mobile device. It will scan either PDFs or JPEGs, and it's got this magical roller separation, so it's going to make sure that it doesn't accidentally grab multiple pages and that you don't end up with jams. Now, that's the iX500. They've also got the S1300i, so if you don't need quite as much power, you're looking for something a little more portable, this will sit on your desktop, or you can store it in a drawer, and it will do up to 12 pages per minute, double-sided, multi-page scanning, and it can be USB-powered for portability if you like. But for the ultimate in portability, they've got the iX100. This is almost like a magic wand. It will scan a page at 300 DPI in less than six seconds. It will fit in a glove box, briefcase, or backpack, and it weighs only 14 ounces. It's USB powered, or it can scan wirelessly to an Android or iOS device, so you don't even have to take a computer. And if you need to scan large form documents or books, check out the SV600. You can find out more information at their website at budurl.me SSMPU. And thanks to Fujitsu for their longtime support of the show. So Casey, one of the the things that you've talked about as as part of this process, it seems to be kind of the common theme running through here is your Synology distation. station. Mm-hmm. It's it's where you store this stuff, it does a lot of behind the scenes stuff, and um I I tweeted a a deal that had popped up that I had found through one of the sites on one of the Synology disk stations and I um, went back and forth in our Slack channel a little bit with you about, is this, you know, is this something that I should look into? Because we have heard so much about the Synologies. I don't have one. I've always been curious about them. So I will tell you, I actually ordered that Synology. I think it's the, the DS415 Play because it's always, I, I love my Drobo, but I always wanted to experiment it because we get so many questions uh, from Mac Power users, listeners about Synology Mine is back ordered because I guess it was a particularly good deal. So it won't arrive until sometime in November. They've given me like a month long shipping window. But talk to us a little bit until then about Synology. What makes it more than just a bucket of storage? I mean, it really does seem like it's a, a mini computer. What are the types of things you can do and what how are you using it?
2: Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, and I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, that, that the Synology I have, which is an 1813 Plus, it was given to me by Synology. Um, it wasn't, they, they didn't sponsor anything, but they had heard um, Marco talking about it on ATP or perhaps on Twitter. And they actually gave each of us, all three of us, an 1813, which is a very expensive piece of hardware that I don't think I would have ever paid for if it was my own money. So to be to be clear, this device that I have fallen in love with, it was given to me. But hand on heart, everything I'm about to tell you is my is my God's honest feelings. And I freaking love this thing. And the reason I love it is because exactly what you said, Katie, it does a lot more than just be a dumb network storage. Now, you could make an argument, and it would be a perfectly reasonable one that all you want from your network network attached storage is, well, network attached storage. But for me, it's really, really nice to have some sort of appliance that's sitting on my network to take care of things that I may not want to deal with on my own. So a couple of examples. I occasionally will want to get on my home network, maybe to VNC into my iMac, maybe to do something else. I can't even really think of another example, to be honest. But for whatever reason, I want to get on my network. Maybe I want to adjust a router setting for some strange reason. Um, the Synology acts as an L2TP and IPsec uh, VPN server, and that's super convenient because L2TP is is one of the VPN servers that or VPN clients that's ba- that's built into both iOS and Sierra. So if I want to from afar, I can lo- I can remote into the Synology and suddenly. I am now using my home internet connection to get to the internet. And sometimes that's useful because I'm, say, at Starbucks, and I don't want anyone to sniff my network traffic, or maybe I'm at a hotel, or any number of reasons. Or like I said, I just want to access a device that's only on my network. Another example, um, you can have it download things based on an RSS feed. So I am self-obsessed enough that I'd like to have a copy of any podcasts that I appear on, including the two that I regularly do, and as well as guest appearances like this. And I want to have a copy of that for my own records, if you will, and and they live on the Synology. So I have the ATP and analog RSS feeds in what they call Download Station, which is the, the software within the Synology that does downloads. And automatically every week as these episodes come out, it will download them and stick them in the appropriate folder. If you happen to to use BitTorrent or newsgroups or any of those sorts of things, it has clients for those as well. Um, it also lets you share files very easily. So I there's many, many, many different ways to share files. I've, I've actually been a latecomer to Dropler and, and really, really like that. But if you want a little bit more privacy, or if you're sending just a truly ridiculously large multi-gigabyte file, I can just share it from the Synology and get a public web link to my Synology that somebody can go grab a file from. So as an example, when we're done recording tonight, I need to send one of you guys this MP3 file of my recording of my microphone. And to be honest, I'll probably do that via dropler, but I could do that via the Synology. And it's just, it changes the way you look at things when you have this server sitting in the house that can just do these sorts of things for you anytime you want, because this thing is always on no matter what. And furthermore, Synology does have a Plex server as installable software on their devices. However, mine, at least, isn't, doesn't have a strong enough CPU to do transcoding. So maybe I'm on my phone on a cellular network, and Plex will be smart enough to say, whoa, maybe I should make this not full 1080. Maybe this should be like a 480 uh, version for the phone because it's a phone, it's small, he's on a cellular network. It shouldn't be, you know, a multi-gigabyte file that he's downloading. Plex is smart enough to do that transcoding on the fly, but unfortunately my particular Synology doesn't have a strong enough CPU to do that. And so what ends up happening is I have my iMac act as the Plex server, but all of the files are stored on the Synology, on the synology which, is, which it sees via a mounted drive. So basically once you have... this always on server always on computer in the house it's just amazing the amount of ways you can figure out to use it to your advantage
0: how difficult was this to set up and i'm asking partially for my my own (laughs) (laughs) will i be calling you or i mean is it do you have to be a server admin to be able to set up something like this do i need to be worried about security and special things or is it kind of plug and play and then install the modules you want
2: uh, I think it's a little column A, a little column B. So the thing that I was least confident in was how to arrange the the volumes on these eight physical hard drives. So my, my particular synology, the 18 in 1813, the eight, uh, as far as I understand, means it's an eight bay. Uh, you said you got a four or 15 or something like that? Yeah, it's a four bay. So exactly. That's a four bay. The fifteen in yours and the thirteen in mine indicates what year it was built. So this was built in twenty thirteen. Yours was presumably a twenty fifteen model. Um, so anyway, uh where was I going with? It? Oh yeah, right. So with these eight compute with these eight hard drives, then the question becomes, well, how do you how do you set those up? Because the Synology could treat that as eight different devices, eight different volumes. It can merge several drives together to expose those to your network as one or two or three volumes. And then once you choose to merge a few physical drives, well, how do you do that? Do you do that with some various versions of RAID? Do you do that with uh, SHR, which is Synology Hybrid RAID, which basically means um, for, for every RAID array that you build with SHR, you can drop one physical hard drive and you will not lose any data. So what I've done, which is per Marco Armin's recommendation is, of my eight bay Synology, I took two of the physical drives, and I think each of these is three terabytes. I took two of the physical drives, mated them as RAID zero, which is going to make the super nerds really upset because that has no loss protection or redundancy whatsoever.
1: But it's fast, right? Yeah, it was taught to me as scary RAID. That's yeah, scary that, raid. It's,
2: it's, it's wrong RAID. You should never do this. But the reason that Marco did it, and I agree with him, is the only thing that goes on that volume is time machine backups. So. If I lose a time machine backup, yeah, it's stinky, but it's not the end of the earth. Whereas the rest of it, the other six physical drives, those are Synology hybrid RAID, So I can drop one of them and have a complete catastrophic failure of one drive and be okay. And all of those are just one big pile of data. So that's what six times three is what? 18 something like that uh, gigs of data. No, is that right? I can't do math. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, You got a lot. You got a lot of data. I got a lot. I had a lot of data there. And that's just one general humongous bucket of bits. And that's where all of the data that I deliberately put there goes. And I've had no problems with this whatsoever. That was the confusing part of the setup. Not because Synology really makes it that difficult, but it's kind of fiddly by nature, if that makes any sense. Once I got the volumes squared away and set up, everything else is kind of like You know, iOS or or the Mac, they have a sort of kind of app store, if you will, where you can download Plex, and you can download a VPN server, and you can download all sorts of different things. Um, And... The, and even my like my dad has a 214 play, uh, which again, full disclosure was given to me uh, and I gave it to dad and he runs his surveillance through it. So he has a camera pointed at the uh, front of the house, or I guess I should say it's pointed at the driveway mounted to the house. And the Synology has its own uh, surveillance station. Again, the station is kind of the theme that Synology uses. And it will record in a loop all of the image, you know, the video coming off of this, this Uh, network attached camera. So it's available to him should something terrible happen. And that's just another app in the uh, package center is what they call it, but effectively the app store and installing those is super duper simple. Um, The only time that I've ever had to fiddle with like, Networking related stuff is the couple of things that I've exposed to the internet that the Synology provides. So for example, the remote management interface or the VPN server. And the VPN server in particular was a little bit wonky to get to get squared away because L2TP uses some more than just ports. It uses protocols and it's all wonky. I I've written about this on my website, and if we recall, we'll put a link in the show notes. But generally speaking, once you get the volume set up, it's really not that bad at all.
0: I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think you'll love it.
1: Yeah, you're gonna have to report in, Katie, and uh, you guys can figure it out for the rest of us. (laughs) Now, now, now Casey, you and I—I think we have kind of a special relationship. You you and Um, I—I think so. uh, Listeners may not know we. One time we were going—I think it was like a barbecue after (laughs) (laughs) WWDC—go to Jason Snell's house, which is kind of far. I mean, it's outside the city, and there wasn't enough room in the car, and. So we were like a clowns in the car and, and you sat on my lap for a whole trip. Yeah, for about an hour. It was magical. I feel like we have this special relationship.
0: <laughs> Things I didn't need to know.
1: Yeah, you have done two unforgivable sins to me, Casey. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not going to get into it too deep here. We, I know Katie's getting mad at me. We're going along. <laughs> but the uh, first thing you did is you went to Disneyland without telling me. <laughs>
2: this is true. It was very quick, but this is true. Yeah, you
1: know, I could have been there in like 20 minutes, you know, but anyway, I know. Then you then you had the audacity to badmouth Disneyland after
2: you left. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing.
1: I, I don't, I don't want to hear it.
2: Uh, well, hear it. so I grew up on the East Coast. I spent some time in the Midwest, but I have never lived west of, jeez, I think Austin, Texas is probably as far west as I've ever lived. And I'd only ever visited California once I was well into adulthood. and. As someone who loves Disney World, who honeymooned in Disney World, who went to Disney World a couple of times as a kid, I am of the personal opinion that there is only one true and real Disney park, and that park is Disney World. Disneyland is but a mere rough draft to the to the final draft that is Disney World. And having been to Disneyland for, admittedly, a half a day uh, earlier this year, I definitely liked it. It's definitely magical and it's definitely cool.
1: But Okay, you can stop right there. You can you can stop right there.
2: No, no, keep going. A very it's a very peculiar thing to look up from Disneyland and see on occasion parts of Anaheim there in the background where by comparison if you're in Disney World, the only thing you're ever going to see is more Disney World. And it's so I think the reality of the situation, if I'm trying to be honest, is that it's just different.
1: But it's jarring if you're used to Disney. It, one, it
2: is. It really is. And as someone who. Generally speaking, if we go to Disney, we'll go for a long time and we'll fly there and we'll do the Magical Express where basically, if you're not familiar, you you bring your bags to the airport where you're departing from, so for your home airport, and you put these special tags on your bags. And when they arrive in Orlando, you don't even look at them. You arrive in the Orlando airport, you go straight to these special buses that take you to you know one of three or four different resorts that are on Disney property, and you check in. Then you maybe you know freshen up in your hotel room, and then you go immediately to the into one of the parks, and by magic, your bags appear in your room later on. And again, the last time you've seen them is at your home airport. And for a week or however long you're staying at Disney World, the only thing that you see is more Disney World, and I love that because I just lose myself in it. Whereas in Disneyland, I feel like it was always at least slightly evident that. I was in the middle of Anaheim and that kind of bursts the, my bubble a little bit. Now, Katie, have you spent your entire time, entire life in Florida or, or only the last few years? No. Nope. Okay. So
0: I've never been to Disneyland, though. At some point, Sparky's going to take me. See, Well, okay. That's the thing is I really want to go
2: with David and, and have him show me why Disneyland is superior. But I would love to hear from you, David, what makes Disneyland so great?
1: It's, it's the original. It's just so much better.
0: and by that he means old small
1: one of the things about see this is you know disney world is like the las vegas version of disneyland it's like everything's so big that's bold the um it the the constraints of disneyland and the way they have to design around i mean we talk about that in terms of apps and other things in the world but the constraints they use um Quite often lead to some of the most delightful elements of it, and I'll, I'll grant you that they don't have the amount of real estate as the state of Rhode Island. As someone told me, they, somebody said they have more real estate in Florida than the size of the state of Rhode Island. I don't know if that's true or not, but but it's a, it's a lot of land. Uh, they don't have that, and and you know they learn that in Anaheim. But the um, it is really uh, it's special. So when you come out here, there's a a bunch of ways you can get and connect connect with me. Casey, in fact, the <laughs> listeners of the show hear them every week. And I think you even have my cell phone number. So I think so. Uh, you know, you just let me take you for a walk through Disneyland and I'll show you why it's I,
2: I really need to. And, and you know, it's funny because even a diehard world aficionado like myself will quickly concede that, among other things, for example, um, parts of the Caribbean is universally understood to be better in land. Is Space Mountain also longer in land like it, than it is in world?
1: I, I don't know. I don't know. But like, for instance, the I mean, if you want to talk rides, uh, the one of the most disappointing things for me at Disney World was the uh, small world. The way the queue is compared to Disneyland is so much better. Oh, but But, it's
2: outside in Disneyland. That's that's barbaric, I tell you. uh,
1: Okay. so (laughs) anyway,
0: I don't know why you would go on. It's a small world, period. Well, there's some truth to that. But (laughs) if you went to
1: Wiggles concerts, you'd go on the small world. That's all I'm going to say. Fair enough. Um,
2: but how can you, how can you prefer land? There's no more people mover in land. You, you only have the people mover in world. That enough. Oh, is you in, know what
1: we used to call that? Grad, when I used to work there. You know, they used to have this thing called grad nights where the kids would stay there all night for um, graduation. That was called, we called it the people maker.
0: Oh, I have to tell you, we had, we have grad night at Disney world. And um, you know who performed at my grad night? Britney Spears. Oh, wow.
1: That's intense. Yes. You're such a baby.
0: Well, she, she was still like a uh, mousketeer. I'm not
1: sure she was alive on my grad night. <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. She was, um, she was still mousketeer, Britney Spears, who was trying to make, um, the transition to become, you know, pop star, Britney Spears. And, uh, needless to say, I don't think she, that was, that was really before she became famous. We were all like, who is this? <laughs> what
2: is this all about?
1: Well, well, we are going to not finish this conversation today, but, uh. But at some point, maybe in two years, when you come back, or next time you're in Anaheim, we're gonna we're gonna settle this. All right. So, uh, gang, uh, Casey, where can people find you if they want to get in contact?
2: Sure. So my website, which I write uh, periodically, is CaseyList.com. You can find me at Twitter at CaseyList, C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S.
0: That's CaseyList.
2: That's CaseyList. And uh, you can find my uh, two podcasts, one of which is the Accidental Tech Podcast uh, with my friends Marco Arment and John Syracusa at ATP.fm. And my other show on this very network, uh, on the Relay Network, which is called Analog, with um, my buddy our our buddy uh, mike hurley and that's at relay.fm slash analog
0: great and we will have links to all of these things in the show notes uh, lots of good links in this episode casey thank you uh, i've been keeping track of them i know david has as well but you can find links to these things uh, at our website at relay.fm slash mpu dash 346 for this particular episode so we're we're getting up there
1: yes we are and uh, you can reach us on Twitter. We are at Mac Power Users. Katie's at Katie Floyd. I am at Max Barkey, and we will see you all next week.